0: My first participant actually uh, confided in us towards the end that they were planning to, after the study was over, um, travel to a foreign country and uh, visit a friend there and then kill themselves. Like, this was the last thing that they were going to try, which is terrifying. The seriousness of the matter, you know, that, that's that's what we're dealing with. That's what we're talking about. That's the patient population. that It's life
1: and death, the study. Yeah,
0: yeah when they finished they start they did go to a foreign country but to become like a yoga instructor and did all kinds of amazing things and uh they still check in once in a while um but they're flourishing their their life is not perfect but is going well they're able to have relationships again and enjoy the world as they should it starts with just taking that leap have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart.
1: Choose something that even if it fails, if it fails you it fails. are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten in that. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. We just heard from Cole Marta, founder of the California Center for Psychedelic Therapy, a clinic in Southern California that is spearheading the use of drugs such as MDMA and psilocybin to treat advanced mental health disorders. For decades, myths such as psychedelics create holes in your brain or that they remain buried in your system forever have incited fear and opposition from the general public. However, cutting edge research by scientists like Cole has been slowly deconstructing that narrative, paving the way for psychedelics to enter the mainstream medical scene. Convinced by the healing benefits of psychedelics, Cole and his team are working hard to figure out how to harness drugs like MDMA to serve those suffering from trauma and mental illness. As we follow Cole's journey, we'll grapple with the stigma surrounding psychedelics and explore the consequences of abusing them versus using them safely. We'll also dance around the concept of time within our lives, within psychedelic trips, and try to understand how it expands, contracts, and doubles back on itself. But in order to understand Cole's work as a psychiatrist, we first need to understand how his views on psychedelics formed. I do want to take it back to the beginning. I was wondering if you could maybe talk to me about some of your first encounters from childhood or or young adulthood um, uh, of maybe that like educational experience, understanding psychedelics is a uh, medicine as a sacrament.
0: Uh, I grew up, you know, in kind of a non-traditional household. I'd say my parents were the, the, the conversations around drugs in the house weren't like the just say no kind of conversations specifically of the eighties that were typically happening, even though drugs were never encouraged or anything. My, my mother and my stepfather were, were deadheads. And so, uh, I think, I didn't know that there were psychedelics around, but I knew that there was this other kind of subculture of people that I later realized, you know, psychedelics were a big part of that subculture.
1: Yeah. Can you explain a little bit what it means to be a deadhead?
0: Right, right. They follow the Grateful Dead, and the Grateful Dead is itself sort of a subculture of people. My parents weren't that into it, but I had an Aunt Barb. And Uncle Steve, who were they would actually travel around with the Grateful Dead when I was like a little kid growing up. And when they would come and visit us, uh, I grew up in Lancaster, California. Uh, when when the Grateful Dead would be coming through California, they'd stop there, and they would sleep in mine and my sister's room, and we would like camp out in their van. It was like a, a big festive, exciting experience. And so the first like ten concerts I went to as a kid were Grateful Dead concerts.
1: Wow. Do you remember what you thought, like being thrown into that environment in that subculture? Were you like, "Oh, this is weird," or "This is cool," "This is exciting," a little scared? Like, like what were you thinking and 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 seeing?
0: It was like going to a Grateful Dead show. You could see some people who obviously were like kind of out of it, but they weren't. They didn't feel dangerous or scary or anything. Uh, and it really felt like a totally safe. Place. Like I never felt like I was in any danger and I'd, kind of wander around and check things out I loved going to the parking lots of the Grateful Dead shows like even more than the concerts themselves the the people are amazing there's drum circles there's uh, people playing the same music as loud as they can out of every car anyway and the people are just like amazing you know they're barefoot and they're like eating, subsiding on grilled cheese sandwiches and uh, just living this nomadic lifestyle that you know I didn't see anywhere else
1: A starkly different environment hits the nail on the head. In many ways, the Grateful Dead created more than just music. They gave people a way of life that was reminiscent of the anti-establishment hippie movement of the 60s, which was already fading fast by the time the band reached mainstream fame in the mid-1970s. The community also had its own self-sustaining civilization like none other. They sold veggie burritos, tie-dye shirts, and art to continue their nomadic lifestyle. Within their rock-infused microcosm, Fans circulated treasured grateful dead artifacts and newsletters. And through these efforts, they created something radical, a way to exist outside the corporate framework completely. Cole's early experience on these countercultural concert grounds left him with one foot in suburbia and another in Revolution. The door was open. But whether he'd step through it or take a step back, we shall see. Was it something you wanted to approach like more closely and and understand more and
0: So, like, that's sort of the subculture, and like the heroes of, of that kind of culture were the heroes that I grew up around, or the heroes of my household. You know, and my aunt uh, Barb got me, uh, you know, a separate reality, the Carlos Castaneda book when I was like in sixth grade, and I read that. It, it was, I guess, very different from what most people would experience. I didn't, I wasn't, it didn't seem salacious, like, oh, this guy's going to Mexico and taking drugs. It was like this wild adventure story of this guy going to you know Mexico and uh having these profound visions and um uh, his growth, you know, the main character's growth largely fictionalized, but like uh you know, it was is definitely an interesting story. Um
1: Did that make you want to, you know, have those visions yourself?
0: No, like that's that's an interesting thing. Like, I don't know, I guess not more than like seeing people drinking alcohol wanting to like drink it's like curious like someday i'll be a grown-up too kind of thing like maybe i will try that out or whatever but it didn't inspire me towards it. it 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 made it actually kind of confusing when like my peer group started experimenting with psychedelics and things when i went to college and at the you know going to festivals and things it was like reading about reading these like Books about like ceremonial sacred uses of peyote uh, or mushrooms, and then also um, learning about like being exposed to ayahuasca ceremonies. Not personally, I wasn't indulging in ayahuasca, but knowing about ayahuasca ceremonies in like high school, um, it sounded like intense. It sounded like not something like fun to run out and go do. So it was weird when like you know. The, the my peer group was approaching a age where it was like you know people started experimenting with psychedelics and stuff and going to parties and it just sounded like oh man you know like carlos castaneda talks about like turning and in, transforming into a crow and like physically feeling his eye move to like the side of his head like a crow's and his vision becoming like 180 degrees or 360 degrees or something i was like I don't want to do that at like a high school party with a bunch of bros talking about their cars and stuff. Like that sounds not appealing at all. So like, it it definitely didn't feel like I was encouraged to take them or anything or
1: like, it it doesn't also doesn't feel like, you know, the, that party setting. I mean, one, it's maybe a little bit too overwhelming to do it there, but like two, like your, your introduction to these, to these substances, like, it had like a, a sacramental undertone. It had uh, spirituality there. It had like a reverence for these the drug and and what it would what what, what would let you see and and like I, I imagine there wasn't that same reverence in in the experimentation right. uh, of your no, peers. No, it
0: wasn't. And I remember you know like really enjoying talking to my peers uh, about what. Like, like Terrence McKenna was an unknown figure at this time, but my stepdad actually used to go and see Terrence McKenna speak at, like, holiday and event centers with, like, 40 people. And, and he was part of the Grateful Dead bootleg recording community. Like, he had his own little audio equipment that he would sneak into Grateful Dead shows and record the live shows. And there's, like, a whole community of bootleggers that would trade like le- legendary live show recordings and stuff like because every show is different with the grateful well, dead it's like improvisational jam stuff um and so certain shows became like legendary and if you had a recording of that like it you know it was, it was like collecting anything else you know collecting records or collecting baseball cards or something um so he would go and see terrence mckenna speak and like whenever he was in southern california and record him and doing live talks, and listen to them in the car when we were like on the way to school. And he was talking about how you know we're approaching this time where you know we're doubling the amount of novelty in the same time frames, and eventually we're going to hit some precipice where uh, on the other side of which we won't be able to comprehend because like things will be changing, and newness, and new ideas, and new concepts, and new technologies will be coming. So quickly, like it will be faster than we can even process it, or something like that, you know, and just like uh you know as like a seventeen year old angsty like punk rock kid, like those are cool ideas, you know those are like the ideas that I brought
1: <laughs> let's talk about going into college because you have all of this amazing like intellectual stimulation it seems from from your parents and the adults around you, and so as you go into college like what are you thinking you want to study and why?
0: Yeah, so when I go to college and what was I originally studying? Oh, psychology. You know, I was just interested in, I think I was always interested in how the mind works. I think going into college, I was just curious. I thought it was more important to like figure out how to be happy and how to be mentally well than it was to like learn a specific trade.
1: Why did you develop that attitude? Because I feel like generally happiness doesn't actually become a priority for a lot of people going into college. It's like like college is what everyone else does and you have to find your major and you're kind of stuck in the cogs and the system that, that people tell you to go into.
0: Yeah, I hear you. Like I think I didn't have that pressure from my parents. Like that wasn't how my parents lived. That wasn't the kind of mentality that I grew up in education was really important in my family in general. So going to college was just about partially about like part of a maturing process. Like it's a safe, comfortable place to transition into adulthood. It just wasn't about earning money. I think from a young age, I thought about happiness a lot. Like I remember like having this conversation with my mom when I was a little kid, like, why do they even make horror movies? Like this is such a stupid idea. Like, why isn't everyone always trying to be having fun and laughing? You know, like it really seemed like that's what life should be about.
1: Going into college as you were uh, talking to, you know, different kinds of people, learning from these different teachers, how did you start to go towards medicine? Because like you eventually would study like neurogenetics and stuff like that. So how did you get into more and more of the medical field?
0: Yeah, so psychology was a bust. It was not rigid enough for me. I wanted to know what was right and what was wrong, and psychology was not about that. So I, after a brief stint exploring economics, I just was really good at chemistry and sciences. And at that point, I just enjoyed being really good at something. I also did enjoy it. Like It really expanded my mind. I like created all kinds of amazing conceptual images and experiences. So those kinds of things were extremely intellectually stimulating to me. So I was like, all right, I'm going to be a chemist. Then I was like, okay, I'm going to be a biologist. I didn't find out later that you could go to medical school with any undergraduates, but I spoke to a guidance counselor and they said, no, you, you know, as long as you do these prerequisite courses, you could be any major. And I was like, That just became like my obsession. I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to medical school. Like, how cool would that be? The idea of going to medical school was kind of always in the back of my mind. And I thought doing research could help get into a medical school. So I split town. I left Santa Cruz, went back to my hometown of Lancaster, got a job as an EMT, all with the plan of like going to medical school. So I, I was an EMT for a few years, emergency medical technician, went and worked in special education in Portland for a couple of years. And then I applied to medical school and that was like a whole another chapter.
1: <laughs> you had entered the rave scene in college a little bit more and you were like hearing about like ketamine in college. I'm wondering how did you become like a reintroduced to interest in psychedelics?
0: So my freshman year, I had this i had to write this paper it was like a 30 page paper and it could be about anything and at that time i was just discovering the whole rave scene and i wanted to talk about the rave scene and the drugs that were being done there and this organization that was brand new called dance safe that was starting in the bay area at least to my knowledge they were just sort of beginning and starting in the bay area and wanted to talk about all the subcultures within the rave scene of like the people who were in a drum and bass and jungle and the people who were into hardcore and the people that were into techno people that were into house that subculture was really important to me there were definitely psychedelics being used there so that was like an important part i think of the discussion
1: can you tell me a little bit about some of your formative rave experiences
0: yeah i went to my very first rave the (laughs) i went to my very first rave actually as a senior in high school with a girlfriend who was really into raving it was in like downtown la and like a pretty shady thing it was when you used to have to get map points to go to a rave like you'd get a flyer and they would say all these djs and half of them weren't really going to be there there was no accountability for any of this stuff and you'd just get an address to like a kiosk like a like a cigarette stand or something. And you go there and you give them your flyer, and then they give you the address of where the real party is. And sometimes it's like thirty miles from the like map point. They call them really? map points.
1: Yeah. Why was it so secretive?
0: Oh, because they were all underground. They were they were usually illegal, or they were like not very well organized, and so they were past the capacity. So, like, once the police figured out where it was the fire could come in and say that they were past like the fire limit or whatever so that was my introduction into it
1: and what was the actual rave like when you going in
0: oh crazy an explosion of neon lights and like smiling faces and the noise is overwhelming which i really love like I still do enjoy like subwoofer bass oriented music that really moves me in like a spiritual kind of way. It's like being transported into like another dimension, you know?
1: So going back now to you writing that paper, what did you actually end up deciding on?
0: So yeah, I ended up writing about All, all of the above. It was a big paper writing about the different subcultures within the music community and trying to define the sort of distinct musical styles, and then also talking about all of the drugs used there and the relative risks and things that have kind of that kind of conversation has continued on. You know, like I said, I was introduced already to Dance Safe Um, by my freshman year of college. I heard about that organization which is an organization that's like a harm reduction model that goes to raves and tries to educate people
1: so after you finish this paper like you graduate you're thinking about med school you've done the EMT stuff
0: I'm thinking about med school I'm thinking about neurology because I think these psychedelics they are profound like they alter how people feel they alter how people perceive things you know there's all kinds of like philosophical kind of questions that came out of psychedelics. So I thought, wow, like who we think we are and what we think is going on is such a fragile balance. So what I knew I wanted to do when I went to medical school was to start having these conversations there and learning about how the brain works. And so I thought incorrectly that that was the field of neurology. And it is not neurology is not where those conversations are happening. Psychiatry is where those conversations are happening. So...
1: Can you tell me about one of those conversations that came up that made you realize this is the right place
0: really it was a particular condition that like caught my eye and i would talk to my professors about it who i had a great teacher dr fogata at elgin mental health center and outside of chicago it's a state mental health center very sick people people with very advanced illnesses and mania like when i first saw people who were floridly manic I thought this is so fascinating and interesting like they are so happy
1: could you describe like an example
0: I remember this guy on my first week he befriended me like he made eye contact with me as soon as I was approaching the door of the hallway where his room is he walked up like beaming with excitement and he would tell me he had the newspaper from that day and he would tell me all this like real estate opportunities that are available in the Illinois, greater Chicagoland area. And just like listening to him, he talked so fast. He was so excited. He was so happy. This guy's, you know, in a pretty tough situation. He's in a locked psychiatric facility. He's not well, but he's so happy, you know? Like this is the first time I'm like, you know, just thinking about it now. It's the first time that I challenge like, challenge my idea, is happiness, like, it's all about happiness, right? Because this guy is the happiest person I've ever met. So, yeah, I would talk to my professors, like, why is this problematic? Like, this guy is so happy. Then, when you meet enough people who have had, who are in that kind of situation, you come to realize the rest of the sort of picture of that is, you know, they're so confident, and they, that rapid pressured speech becomes overwhelming to people around them. It can ruin relationships. They may have spent all their money on one of these real estate ideas that they found in the newspaper that fascinated me.
1: See, like I hear that and I just think like, that's just like the founder mentality, right? (laughs) Essentially, it sounds like the, like this guy has like a great idea for some business opportunity and doesn't really think and does it. And I'm like wondering, is like the only difference luck and intelligence, right? Between someone who founds a billion dollar company and then someone who's manic and blows their money on real estate. Yes.
0: So like, those are the conversations that I wanted to have. Like, how do we know this person doesn't have a billion dollar idea, right? So what happens, there's this book called Touch by Fire that kind of explores this, that like posits that, I guess like the idea that like there's mentally ill people and there's well people just started to dissolve around that time. And that, what got the nuance of it, that like, there are people who are mentally ill sometimes, and most of the time they're good. There's an overrepresentation of people with ADHD in comedy and stand up comedy for a lot of reasons, but the tangential thinking that can come with bipolar or ADHD can be useful for thinking about things in a different way, finding a novel kind of connection between two ideas that someone who thinks more linearly and more systematically might not have ever thought about the connection between whatever they may be.
1: Cole touches on a really important point about the nature of mental health issues here. The patients in the system he saw had not failed in any way. They weren't fundamentally broken. Perhaps the system they were faced in just needed fixing. A crucial factor that affects whether someone suffers from or learns to manage their disorder is whether they ever get diagnosed. For example, NYU psychiatrist Len Adler estimates that 75% of adults with ADHD don't even know they have it. Unaware that their brains work differently from the general population, these adults end up feeling incompetent. As a result, they are more prone to anxiety, substance abuse, and job insecurity. A proper diagnosis would not only change the way they see themselves, but it could change the outcome of their lives. Cole's recognition of the power of diagnosis and the proper psychiatric treatment motivated him to continue his journey down the medical path. He could empathize with his patient's struggles, and he knew that recovery was possible. As bad as their current state may seem, Cole saw their current mental health struggles didn't define their self-worth nor rule out the chance at a more stable future. Confident that the medical field was for him, it was time to find his specialization. So you're having these conversations with like these people around these topics that you actually enjoy. How do you start to laser focus in on on psychiatry as a discipline, and how do you go more and more towards maybe like MDMA trials?
0: Thinking that it was gonna be neurology, the first two years of medical school are hardcore books. Like, it's, it's studying and testing, studying and testing, studying and testing. Year three and four is all rotation. Six-week rotations, eight-week rotations in a particular field of medicine, and you hit all of the major ones. And so it wasn't until my first rotation, which was psychiatry, that I had these experiences that I didn't find in any of the other fields. I found interesting things in all of the other fields of medicine, but I also found that most of them are very algorithmic, and so is psychiatry. I'm not saying psychiatry isn't algorithmic, but there's such opportunity in psychiatry to learn you're, you'll be better at your job if you keep learning even more and more and more. My hesitation about psychiatry was that it was not what I pictured medical doctors to do and medical doctors to be. And there is some stigma, or at least there was when I was in med school. I think it's a lot hipper of a field. To, What's the stigma? Just that it's not like as hard science as the other medical fields. A lot of like unexplained things get dumped sort of in a mental health basket. The fact that there's this marriage to psychology and that psychiatry and psychology sort of came from the same little lineage tree opens a whole field and all kinds of technique-oriented learning that can go on forever. You know, there's no end to that.
1: The rise of mental health issues among Americans in recent years have made the fields of psychology and psychiatry indispensable. Between 2021 and 2022, there was an increase of 664,000 people who seriously considered attempting suicide. In the same period of time, 15% of youth reported experiencing a major depressive episode. The situation is just as dire across the globe. According to a 2022 report by the World Health Organization, anxiety and depression are up by 25% since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. All this data is a sign that exploring novel treatment methods is more crucial now than ever. Treatments such as psychedelic therapy. Just as different diseases require different types of medication, different mental illnesses require different types of treatment. While psychedelic therapy wasn't the end-all be-all solution for every mental health issue out there, it could be the right fit for a particular group of people. But what group exactly and how should they go about applying it? Cole was determined to find out. This is getting pretty close to the UCLA psychiatry residency.
0: Yeah, so... Actually, what happened was one of my classmates gave me—I think it was like a GQ article about Sasha Shulgin. I'd been stuck, it's buried under books for two and a half years. When my friend showed me this article, because I would talk about these things with my classmates in med school, like I'd talk about my interests and talk about psychedelics and stuff. So this classmate Dan Weiss showed me this article and was like, "I think you'd really dig this. Like, there's like doctors in here talking about psychedelics." I was like. I was reintroduced to this whole world again. It's like, that's right. Duh. Oh my gosh. Maps. What's maps up to these days? So I like went to maps website. There's this amazing article on there called. So you want to be a psychedelic researcher? So you want to be a psychedelic researcher?
1: You're like, that's me.
0: And I was like, yes, I do. So I (laughs) read this article and it was so great. It was like, you know, if you want to be Timothy Leary and you want to be a rock star, like There are ways to do that, and there are ways to be an advocate for psychedelics that have nothing to do with being a psychedelic researcher. But if you're a scientist, and you like the scientific method, and you like testing hypotheses, then this might be for you. And if so, uh, Andrew Sewell was his name, write me. And I did. I, I emailed him. I was like, I'm about to graduate. I'm looking at my residencies now and so he said well you should talk to charlie Grobe. he's a really approachable nice guy and i'll send you an email i'll introduce you to if you decide to come out here i'll I'll interview you here
1: sounds like like the most amazing opportunity you could ask for (laughs)
0: yeah i was like oh wow um so there are some people on the inside who like share this interest that are doing this work already through talking with maps They were still trying to figure out how they were gonna make this MDMA PTSD study happen. So I thought, well, if it's gonna definitely be for PTSD, there's this program at a VA that I like anyway. 80% of my patient load at the VA would had PTSD. So I got
1: a real crash course. There's a reason why of all the psychedelics out there, Cole was choosing to work with MDMA. If you don't know, MDMA or ecstasy is a synthetic drug that acts as both a stimulant and a hallucinogen. Users typically experience a boost of energy, distortion in perspective, but most importantly, a heightened sense of empathy and self-awareness. This last point is the reason why Cole believed in its potential to treat PTSD. One reason why post-traumatic stress disorder is so tricky to treat is because instead of storing trauma as a regular memory, the human brain treats it as if it's still occurring in the present. Emory University researcher Michael Davis explains it as the brain's inability to distinguish between dangerous and safe situations. This is where the usefulness of MDMA kicks in. Increasing self-awareness gives people the grounds to see their trauma from a different angle, while decreased anxiety makes it easier to talk about the complex emotions. But would MDMA actually be effective or was Cole walking towards a dead end? Well, we'll let his research speak for itself. Can you tell me a little bit about like, you know, what, what you saw there, what you learned, what PTSD looks like in that context?
0: I learned that veterans are an incredible population to work with. And a lot of the ones with PTSD really struggled to reintegrate in civilian life in one way or another. I like to think of PTSD as like something that happens to a healthy brain when exposed to unhealthy conditions. We're designed for survival. So when people are exposed to an event that threatens them, a biological process sort of overrides the normal uh, way of working. And so people become more jumpy. They become more aware of dangers in their environment. They become more aware of potential dangers in their environment they become more suspicious sometimes
1: and so when you see all of these conditions like how how this condition is is expressed like what are you thinking of in terms of a viable solution
0: i was trained formally in in all of the tools that we had available to us at the time which were just extremely limited all the while i'm getting trained you know i'm staying in contact with the the maps team and tracking their progress and communicating with them about mine. They were ready to start their research right when I was graduating from my residency program. But in the last two years of residency, I decided to take advantage of my position. Like I was at a residency program at a world renowned mental health and hospital center. I was a you know I was a UCLA affiliate. And so I just got involved in as much research as I could, and started publishing as many papers of my own that I could. My respect for the scientific process has only like grown through the whole through the whole process of trying to become a scientist myself, you know.
1: And those papers were those weren't the MDMA studies, yet, right? right?
0: So, I my first paper that I published, I believe, was the ketamine review article. We looked at all of the evidence for ketamine's usefulness for depression. And then the second paper was actually a short series about Ibogaine. When I was in the psychiatric emergency room, I personally came across a handful of cases. There were three cases that I reported where people had had florid psychotic manic episodes after ingesting Ibogaine for different purposes.
1: When these people go to the psych ward, what is their their condition what like what 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 is the result
0: terrible yeah so all in all three of these cases they were in extremely like dire emergency situations you know psychotic manic psychotic meaning like you know engaging like believing in a full delusional system audit sometimes auditory hallucinations one of them like not sleeping for days or weeks
1: In terms of similarities between these three people, did, did the delusions share any similarities or were they all drastically different?
0: They were different. They were all fairly bizarre. One of them was arrested breaking into NASA. They thought that their purpose was to have a baby with God at NASA for some reason. Yeah, and another person was just... They couldn't be managed at their residential um, place, and they were they like busted out of their residential rehab center and were just terrifying people on the beach.
1: They were sustained outside of like the the trip experience, right?
0: Right, like they lasted after you would expect the acute like psychedelic effect of the ibogaine to have been gone.
1: And did they diminish over time, like in the same way, like, you know, you know how there's the, the psychedelic studies were, or I mean, in, in your, in your studies, right? Like uh, six months, like these, these positive effects can last six months. So is it the same in reverse?
0: No, it, because they were in such like a severe condition, they were hospitalized. So two of them stayed in the hospital where I was rotating. So I was able to kind of follow up one of them was transferred to another hospital so i don't know but the two that stayed at that hospital it took them a while that's one of the you know more dangerous things about mania in general and psychosis is both of those one of the characteristics of them is that they have a lack of insight like they don't know something is wrong and makes it an adversarial thing where they it's it's a, it's a hard to thread the needle to like maintain any sort of therapeutic alliance or positive relationship with a patient who thinks that you're trying to drug them. That was really important, publishing that paper on what I saw with the Ibogaine patients. Like, that's not a flattering look.
1: Like, what was there any um, pushback in releasing that?
0: Not a lot. I mean, that my heroes were proud of that kind of thing. The people that I was, you know, looking to as mentors at that time, encouraged me to write that paper. And I, by the, by the time I wrote that, I had a real appreciation for what what you know the power of publishing scientific research was. You know, it essentially like settles the score. Like when we do the research and we do the if we do the research correctly and we ask the question very deliberately in a very careful way, then we, it's not a debate anymore. Like we, we we asked and answered the question. I proposed a team. Uh, I found an all-star cast of potential researchers here in Los Angeles. We started the research with MDMA, assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And so yeah, in 2017, uh, we became the Los Angeles site for the multi-site uh, research project.
1: What did that feel like? Because this is like maps had kind of been a, a dream right. of, of yours. And now you had like your own, your rock star team.
0: Right. Yeah. No, uh, it, it, it has been and continues to be. It's felt like a real dream come true, even though it hasn't always been a dream ride um, it, it it it's like if if i wasn't the person running the team i would want to be on this team you know this is where i would want to be and that's what i feel like has been what i've been doing since i graduated from residency is i'm creating the job that i wanted that i dreamed would be available to me one day like i think psychedelics are valuable even outside of their ability to necessarily help with medical conditions, but I want to know if they're helpful for medical conditions and mental health conditions. And if they're not, to me, it's like, I need to know that. I need to know if they're not going to be helpful, if they're going to expose people to manic episodes. Um, I need to know all of those things because I take the responsibility of people' well-being in my hands in that way.
1: Um So in your studies in your MDMA studies, um, what were, can you, can you tell me about some of the experience your, your patients had and um, some of the moments you realize, okay, like we're on the right track. We're finding something here that is uh, scientifically uh, justified and, and provable and and helpful.
0: Yeah. I mean, um, two thirds of people uh, participating in the studies had like uh um did not meet the like criteria for ptsd anymore after they had been in it it's not a cure for ptsd but the way that we measure ptsd is with a with a scale called caps um the clinically administered ptsd scale and a certain score um is required to meet the meet the diagnostic criteria for for caps which is pretty profound uh well, is extremely profound. And these results are longstanding, you know, like six months or more, sometimes years and years follow up. Um, in a lot of cases, their scores continue to improve. We're seeing like in statistical analysis, there's this thing called effect size. And essentially with sertraline and Paxil, you had to measure a lot of people. You'd have to administer this to hundreds or thousands of people to be able to confidently say that the improvement is better than placebo. That's because the effect size is not huge. So to be certain that there even is a difference between the two groups, you'd have to measure a lot of people and go, okay, there is a trend here. But the effect size with MDMA for PTSD is so enormous that with just a hundred participants or so, we can say confidently that there is a significant difference between MDMA and placebo group. Like the difference is so big, we don't have to measure thousands of people, like in order to be able to statistically be confident that there is a big difference between people who receive MDMA and people who don't receive MDMA.
1: And so, bringing the the stats to specific experiences, can you talk about some of the patients that maybe had that CAP score uh, really lowered and the PTSD diagnosis uh, no longer applied?
0: Right. You know, I, I have to be careful not to get into any identifying kind of information, but I would say sure, of course. what's been really uh, a heartbreaking eye opener is the amount of sexual assaults that happens in civilian life. I would say that's the number one sort of reason that we see people coming into the study even though we do openly recruit veterans. I've had more than one participant that uh were chronically suicidal and uh, by the end of the study uh, were the kinds of people that were not um, meeting criteria for ptsd anymore but the seriousness of the matter you know that that's that's what we're dealing with that's what we're talking about that's the patient population this is life and death the study
1: that's so incredible like i mean the fact that you have i mean it's like it's cool that you can look at the data but it's also i mean it must feel really um fulfilling that you have like these stories that you can look at and and see that like you're you're making difference in the lives of individuals as well as as making huge strides for for science and psychiatry in general
0: i mean it's it's a one at a time kind of difference but you feel it deeply like being able to hold space for somebody who is that vulnerable and in that place um is something that we take extremely seriously, uh, and it uh, like sort of forces you to conduct yourself in a very thoughtful and kind and warm way.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about what um, what does it mean to hold space? What do the studies look like? Can you tell me a little bit about sessions and, and how, how they sure. operate?
0: So the sessions are, um, we do a lot of preparation. <laughs> we do a significant amount of screening. And um, cardiology uh, screening, we get all of their medical records, do a history and physical, um, do CAPS scoring. And then we do three preparatory sessions that are in an office. The space is deliberately designed to be like an inviting sort of aunt's house or grandma's house or something. I don't know what the <laughs> not grandma's house, but and it's meant to be like a home, not to feel like a doctor's office. We have eye shades and headphones uh, and a sound system in each room. So after three preparatory sessions, someone comes in for uh, what we call an experimental session or a medicine session.
1: And the three preparatory sessions are just to screen?
0: Well, at that point, they should be mostly through screening. And we're we're confident we're moving forward with a day-long session at that point. So there's a lot of preparing for what that day looks like. Also, a lot of developing the relationship with the therapists, uh, between the therapist and the participant, developing what's called the therapeutic alliance, the relationship around the, um, the process of working on healing and then in the day long they come in they actually stay overnight in the office and um but they come in in the morning and we get started right away and after they take the medicine we encourage them to go inward and that can be with eye shades or headphones or that can just be laying in silence and uh, as the medicine comes on um, we encourage them to just be kind of paying attention to what's coming up and then It's eight hours in there um, with the two therapists and uh, and it seems clear to me uh, both observationally and looking at the data that the MDMA does something to allow people to talk about and approach things that they would not otherwise uh, be able to talk about and approach. And that's a big part of where the healing seems to happen.
1: What's the the dosage that you usually um, go with in these sessions? And I imagine it's also based on a weight, so is it like a weight to... It's
0: not based on weight, um, but there is a weight minimum to be in the study. Um, and uh, it's 80 milligrams and 40 milligrams. So we give a dose sort of when we start and then another dose 90 minutes to two hours later. Uh, so it's 80 and then 40. Is it 80? And then it's 120 right. and 60 for sessions two and three. So the course of the whole study is three preparatory sessions, one day long, three integration sessions, another day long integration, day long, and then three terminations. So it's uh, 15 total visits, um, and three of them are with MDMA.
1: years of bussing past the map's headquarters, picturing himself working the dream job, and at last, Cole had made it. But his success didn't take the form of a CEO-level paycheck or a multimillion-dollar company. It took the form of giving people hope and a fresh start. I think this is an example of how, sometimes, the most rewarding achievements are those that can be shared with others. MDMA isn't the perfect answer to PTSD, but with two-thirds of his patients now freed from its symptoms, it clearly has a ton of potential. And with great potential, comes great responsibility. Using medication is as much a process of trusting your doctor as it is a journey of risk. But given that research on psychedelics is still very much developing, especially for drugs like MDMA, how do researchers like Colt tap into the healing benefits of psychedelics while protecting patients from consequences like neurotoxicity? Well, the answer is in the data. I would love to understand your thoughts on on neurotoxicity, safety with uh, and in terms of dosage. In terms of your own study and then in terms of like frequency?
0: There are a few things that were a big part of the conversation when I was in college. Like these were these were the things that were like everyone knew these things. Everyone knew that MDMA puts holes in your brains because it was on Oprah and they showed these like uh, PET scan images of a girl who had taken MDMA I think it was a girl that had taken MDMA a young person that had taken MDMA and there were whole regions of the brains that were not lighting up and so it horrified the audience but what they didn't know was that these are like blood flow images so it was just showing the parts of the brain where blood was flowing so that was just like weird that was just like a weird one to run into all the time like this is just this is just wrong another one was a study that I believe was on at Johns Hopkins somebody was doing research with, I think it was rats and showed that uh, MDMA was causing, I think this was like the axon terminal pruning or something, it was like causing structural damage to nerves. It turned out they were using methamphetamine and not MDMA in that study. It, the whole thing was redacted, and that, from, from all accounts, from what I've heard, they're researcher genuinely like made some mistake i don't understand how you make that mistake it can be mentioned in so many interviews so many times and it doesn't undo the like false narrative that confirms people's fears and biases even if it's wrong i guess the answer is that it is a fairly nebulous like data set like it's it's hard to make sense of exactly what the concern should be but we know there should be some because there is something called chronic tolerance with MDMA, where people report no longer feeling the effects of MDMA.
1: Like in like, the, in like rave culture, they call it like losing the magic. Oh, or something yeah.
0: Like that, right? yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so that, that kind of thing suggests that some, something is happening. All the more reason that the research is so important.
1: Psychedelics give us a clear example of how history isn't stagnant. It ebbs and flows, doubling back on itself time after time. The early 2000s' misbelief that psychedelics burrow holes into people's brains was not the first of its kind. In the 70s, false claims that psychedelics were dangerously addictive brought the cultural and scientific experimentation of the previous decade to a grinding halt. But nowadays, not only has psychedelic research regained the momentum it had lost in the 20th century, it's even trickling into mainstream markets, something that the 60s didn't tap. For example, there are over 50 public psychedelic companies as of 2022 microdosing among tech professionals is now trending and the number of psychedelic clinics is at an all-time high. With a $6.5 billion industry on the cusp of legalization, talks about how to keep psychedelics from the hands of big pharma are beginning to attract public attention. When looking at the history of legalization, these talks feel like an iteration of the same issues that had plagued the cannabis industry just a few years ago. But whether psychedelics will fall to the same fate of cannabis or whether it'll break the pattern of history to create a more equal market, only time will tell coming towards today right you have your own practice you're you're doing these MDMA studies can you tell me about what you're most excited for what you're most interested in and 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 just what what's going on today
0: yeah you know, i'm interested to see how the conversation around MDMA picks up as the data is coming in we're finishing our phase 3 trials this whole movement with MDMA and all of the research that has been done with MDMA is culminating you know, into all the data that's going to be done being collected at the end of this year. And then seeing what other psychedelics pan out as potentially useful for other conditions, looking at what other things MDMA might even be useful for. Me personally, I'm looking to expand the clinic and be able to offer people that dream job that I was hoping existed would exist for me. Uh, Being able to hire a psychedelic psychiatrist and being able to hire a psychedelic therapist, which I've done, bringing MDMA from the research side into the clinical side and being able to offer it—that's, you know, those are the next big steps. It's exciting to be a scientist in the time where we get to test whether psychedelics have the potential that so many people believe that they do for healing and. I have faith in the scientific process to decide whether or not that holds water.
1: If you had one piece of advice for people who are entering this field, what advice do you think you would give them?
0: I would say be patient, try and find mentors. They're there now. Focus on being a good clinician, focus on being a good therapist. There's more skill to practice and develop and continually work on in being a good mental health provider. You can learn all the psychedelic stuff much faster. It takes a lot of practice and dedication to be a good therapist with or without psychedelics.
1: Cole can see his years of hard work finally coming together. He's working his dream job with maps, but more importantly, he's spearheading research with the potential to save hundreds of thousands or millions of lives. Like a lot of people with big dreams, Cole is ambitious, but his ambition stems from a desire to help others, to lift them out of their past and invite them into a brighter future. He applies this attitude not only when working with his patients, but also towards his colleagues. Just as he's had others open doors for him, now he wants to do the same for others, Cole arrived at where he is now, not just because of his flair for understanding brain chemistry, but because in every stage of life, he strove to understand people. From watching his aunt and uncle trail after the Grateful Dead, he learned to be open-minded towards alternative ways of living. Talking to mania patients taught him to have compassion to those who have yet to learn how to manage their mental illness. Cole's journey can be described as anything but ordinary, and that's precisely why he's left such a phenomenal impact on the lives around him. Change doesn't happen from doing what has already been done. It happens from altering our perspectives and trying something new. And I think Cole is leading from example. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our Chief of Staff and Operations is Jessica Lin. Our Audio Editing Team Lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from Irene Van Burkle Matt Fernandez Renee Cannon. Sophia Donner David Saide Ashley Jimenez Nicholas Guzman Aaron Devereaux Sanessa Gisley and Lois Choi Our Outreach and Research Lead is Kenny Ong with support from
0: Sarah Hobson Cherise Tan Harushi Kanauchi
1: Kristen Hagelin Aya Cortes and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki McCalla. Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menna. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Liu, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.